Hello, and welcome to episode 308 of From Paper to People. I'm your hostess with the mostest, Carolyn Nee Lachlan, and I want to open by thanking my latest Patreon supporters, Anonymous, for a generous gift of $50 support, Stephanie Nadrebo, my latest Vine at $7.50 a month, Allison Peacock, creator of FamilyScribe.com and A New Root at $5 a month, Laura Daniel, A New Root at $5 a month, and a new regular volunteer for the Reparational Genealogy Project. And back in April, I think I missed a thank you to Abby McDonough, a seedling at $2 a month. If I did, I apologize, Abby, but thank you now. Every bit matters. So I thank you all very much. Things are getting more and more busy around here, so the financial support really helps. To join them, hit up patreon.com slash ancestors alive to volunteer for the Reparational Genealogy Project. Message me on my website through Patreon, on Instagram, or through my Facebook page. This episode is an interview with my cousin Brian Sheffy. We spoke on July 15th, and we are both pretty unhappy about Ancestry DNA's new policy of deleting all matches below eight centimorgans, a policy that will go into effect in August of 2020. He's here to explain it and to have a chin wag with me about actions we can take to preserve what we have before Ancestry's deadline. There are two things you need to know before we begin. First, the author of the Cruz blog, I quote, belongs to Debbie Kennett. You can and should follow it at cruz.blogspot.com. And Cruz is spelled C-R-U-W-Y-S. And while you're at it, follow her on Twitter at Debbie Kennett. That's two N's and two T's. Second, freakishly enough, just a few days after we recorded this episode, Jed Match blew it again. On July 19, 2020, Verigen, the owner of GEDmatch, updated their software, which resulted in a temporary breach of their informed consent policy. All the kits for a short time were rendered fully public because a user logged in and hacked the site, which meant that those who opted out of participation in law enforcement research were opted in without their knowledge. For those like me who opted out, this is yet another in a string of disappointments regarding GEDmatch. Having just uploaded my DNA again a few weeks ago, I have removed my DNA from their database, this time for the last time. There is another DNA database devoted exclusively to DNA matching for crimes at dnasolves.com. If you wish to participate in solving missing persons, unidentified victims, and other criminal cases, upload your kit there and at GEDmatch. Your opportunities to assist in criminal work are virtually unlimited. If you are concerned about yet another privacy breach on GEDmatch, however brief, you may want to remain private by removing your kit from GEDmatch altogether. This is up to you. Unfortunately, this will hamstring genealogical researchers working with adoption, fostering, foundling, and enslavement-related challenges. Maybe, sometime, someone with greater skills and vision than I have will create a similar site that is impermeable to law enforcement access. And I hope that those who opt in will not shame those who do not opt in. We all have our reasons for making our own choices and our agency to do just that. So do what's right for you, but don't harsh on people who do differently. 
This breach in turn, by the way, <laughs> enabled another. Apparently, the GEDmatch hacker gathered emails and used them to wreak a little havoc with Family Tree Maker, a standalone program that links with Ancestry. And then, just when I thought I was done writing opening notes for this episode, my heritage had a security breach too. I will hunt down links to articles about these various privacy and data safety issues and leave them in the show notes. Check over the next few days for updates to those links. Listen to the end of this episode for further updates from Ancestry DNA on their changing policy and their revised timeline. Here now, my interview with Brian Sheffy. We spend the last few minutes geeking out about how we met and figuring out that we were cousins. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, everybody. I am here today with a very special guest I've been looking forward to having on for quite some time. I was on his podcast, now he's on mine, and that's how it works in podcast land, but that's especially how it works if you're cousins. So I would like to introduce my cousin, Brian Sheffy. He is a genealogist and an author and an all-around awesome person. Say hello to the folks, Brian. Hello, people. <laughs> Thank you so much, my, my Calvert cousin, for, for having me on your podcast. It means a lot. You bet. And Pace. We're, we, are, we are cousins three different ways that we know of. That's true. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's just, it keeps on ticking, this genealogy work of ours. So something's come up today, and you made me aware of it on Facebook. And mm -hmm. which is one of the things that Brian is really good at, by the way, is making me aware of things on Facebook. So there's a post on the Cruise blog, and the location is C-R-U-W-Y-S, which is cruise.blogspot.com. And I want to read you the opening of this blog post because it will explain the problem that we're going to discuss today. It says, Ancestry announced at a conference call today that there are some changes in the pipeline in terms of how our matches, DNA matches, are reported. There will be three main changes. One, Ancestry will provide a more accurate report on the number of segments shared with your matches. Two, Ancestry will report the length of the largest shared segment. And three, the matches will be recalibrated to remove false matches so that the reported matches are more likely to be related through a recent common ancestor. Once the update is implemented, only matches which share eight centimorgans or more will be reported. Ancestry estimates that this will remove about two-thirds of the false matches. All matches that fall below the new threshold will disappear from your match list, with the exception of matches you have messaged, matches where you've added a note, and matches you have added to a group by using the system of colored dots. Any matches sharing less than eight centimorgans in total will no longer appear as a common ancestor hints or in the through lines feature. If you want to save these matches, you'll need to make sure to add them to one of your groups. Note that it is only the total centimorgan shared after the application of the timber algorithm that is affected. So you could still have matches which share some individual segments that are smaller than eight centimorgans, so long as the sum total of the segments is over eight centimorgans. On-site messaging will start to appear on the site in the next few days to alert users to the updated matching system, and a new matching white paper will be available later this week. We can expect to see the new matching system rolled out in early August. Okay, this is problematic. 
tell everybody, Brian, because you really do know this stuff better than I do. Why is this problematic? It is problematic. And I'm going to start with the simplest one first. A lot of people's brick wall, I mean, people are going to have brick walls in their ancestry. And by that, I mean an ancestor that is just really difficult to be able to trace through the records. Thinking about people who might experience that within the last, say, three to four generations of their family, we're talking about adoptees or people who are the product of a non-paternity event, foundlings, all of that kind of thing. So they're going to have issues in the more kind of, as you get closer to the, the here and now. Where a lot of us are going to have problems is when you start getting into the, the early 1800s and the colonial period. So naturally, the way that you inherit DNA is the older your, your ancestors are, the less amount of DNA you're going to inherit from them, if you inherit any at all. Because as you know, DNA inheritance is a bit of a crapshoot. <laughs> it is indeed. <laughs> you know, when you consider how many kind of three, four, five, six times great-grandparents we have, our, our poor little chromosomes only have so much space. So, I mean, they can't incorporate DNA from everyone that we're descended from. But where this is really going to be problematic is, for me, on the whole, say, eight centimorgans, we're probably looking at someone who, an ancestor who depending on how it goes, it's either going to be a second or a third or possibly four times great-grandparent. So, you know, we're going back further and further in time. So if ancestry DNA is going to raise the matching criteria, which is what they're doing, it's going to knock out a whole bunch of people that you are actually connected to through DNA, but your common ancestors are going back much further in time. And I really think it's something that, that ancestry needs to, to kind of take to take on board. And so for instance, by changing this, if I want to try to find early African ancestors, well, not even necessarily early ones, say an African ancestor who was born about 1730, the likelihood that I'm going to get eight centimorgans or more is not, is like next to none. So that's going to rule that out. Um, and there are a lot of, you know, black genealogists or, you know, um, a lot of African Americans who are researching their family tree, even if it's as a hobby with the goal of getting African ancestors. Well, ancestry has just voided that pretty much. Because again, if you have ancestry like mine, I've, you know, I descend from 12 generations of, of African and African descended people. Thankfully, I was able to prove that before any of this kind of changing stuff goes on. So that's gonna affect my African ancestors. That's gonna affect my poorly documented European ancestors who were moving to places like Kentucky and Tennessee before they were even territories. So we're talking the really early 1700s. It's gonna knock them out. It's gonna destroy my ability to identify my Native American ancestors and also identify the white parent, whether it's male or female, for both my enslaved ancestors who are mulattoes or free people of color. So right. that's about four or five groups that ancestry with this change is going to make either incredibly difficult to be able to prove descendancy or impossible to do it. I would actually have to take my DNA test, upload it to a service called JetMatch, which is free, and then do the DNA work on there, which kind of brings me to the question, why am I paying Ancestry almost $50 a month if their test is no longer going to work for me? And it's valid. And of course, with JetMatch, there is the ongoing question I understand that it is different from what it was, but the fact is that there is 
the, the possibility to opt into law enforcement accessibility so that on GEDmatch, that's what CC Moore and the genetic detective is all about, using that site as a place to secretly, basically, access other people's DNA kits when they upload the DNA profile of a criminal who left evidence behind and that law enforcement, for whatever reason, has not been able to find in CODIS or in any system. There are many reasons why that would be, I guess. I know that now we have to actively opt in in order to have our DNA kits considered for law enforcement, and that only recently I personally did re-upload my kit and opted out of law enforcement accessibility. But I still tell people, and specifically Black users, don't use GEDmatch at all because two times without asking, without any kind of informed consent, the owners of GEDmatch accessed DNA kits and used them to find criminals. Now, the goal is noble. I'm not saying everybody who committed crimes and who wasn't caught should be continuing to run around and live their lives and not be caught. I'm saying that there was no informed consent. I certainly personally was not asked, is it okay if we look at your DNA and size up this kit against everybody in here? And if somebody is related to you, utilize your information in order to be able to build relationships and, and find who this person is, this person who committed a crime. That's just for me. And I'm white, which means I'm supposedly, you know, safe. If you're Black, I believe that GEDmatch is a dangerous site. And the reason is that two times that happened, two times DNA was utilized, was accessed and utilized in a search without seeking or gaining the informed consent of the people who had placed their DNA on the platform. And something about which I feel very strongly as a, an element of social justice, I think that that is really abhorrent. And from a privacy standpoint, I think it's really abhorrent. And I understand that somebody new owns it now. And I, as I said, I understand that it is possible to opt in or opt out. And it is what you do at the moment that you're uploading your kit. But I still don't trust them completely. And so anybody, <laughs> I don't trust anybody if they cross me once, forget it. Um, and so the problem is that if you are black, if you are of any mixed ethnicity in terms of Native American, black, Latino, European, that isn't Latino from this continent, you know, it just worries me. It just concerns me. I mean, yes, obviously, what are you paying for if Ancestry isn't doing this for you, but also when you do try to access an outside service, how do you know that that's not going to be abused? Exactly. I probably, I probably sound like a, like a conspiracy theorist anymore. I've also been telling people to go out and buy canned goods and paper goods and Lysol because there's going to be a resurgence <laughs> of COVID in the places where it already hit. So I probably sound like a real tinfoil hat chick right about now. Well, I have to support what you're saying because I mean, I, I manage about five family members' DNA kits from Ancestry. So I downloaded the, their results and I uploaded them to GEDmatch. And this is before law enforcement had access to it. You know, and I told, as a responsible DNA test administrator, I let my, the, each individual family member know what I was planning on doing and why I was doing it. 
And they get it. They get that Ancestry doesn't give you the full suite of tools that perhaps it ought to, to be able to work with your DNA results. So they got it. They're like, nope, if you can get any kind of indications about who our ancestors are in judgment, we're fine with that. But as soon as that story broke about the kind of perception of a breach of people's privacy on JetMatch, pretty much everyone whose kid I administered wanted it taken off. They're like, you know, we have nothing to hide. You know, no one in our family has been arrested. But still, we feel really uncomfortable that law enforcement can just go and get our DNA willy-nilly. Yeah. So yeah. I had to take all of this off. And for the last six months, I've been umming and awing about whether I should take mine off, to mm -hmm. be, per be perfectly honest. So that that you know that that is an issue, unfortunately. Well, when Golden State came down, I did take mine off, and the other kits that I was managing as well. And only within this last month did I put mine back up. I did not put the other family members back up, and I opted out of law enforcement. Now I'm working on a case where right now I am seeking the birth parents of an 87 year old client, and oh. So I know. <laughs> and so this client's parents were born at the beginning of the 20th century. And on one side, it wasn't bad. There were first cousin matches. And so it only took me about four hours to isolate that. That was fine. But the other side, the nearest match is a fourth to sixth cousin match. Ooh. I'm going to have to be, yeah, tell me about it. And there are only really a few of them. There were like 150 matches on the one side with the first cousins and everything. And on the other side, there are like 50-ish matches and they start at fourth to sixth cousin. So when I'm triangulating and everybody, so you know what triangulating is, is uh, you look at your list of cousins, that lineup that you're given from the person who's most nearly related to you going further away in Ancestry DNA. And when you click on one of those matches, you can look at all the areas that you do or don't share in terms of geographic origin, and then you can click on shared matches, and it will show everybody with whom you share some DNA. And what I was able to do was line up side number one and side number two, having no idea which side was which parent, and it became apparent that side one was dad. So that's cool. But side two, when I have to look at somebody who's a fourth to sixth cousin, that means at the very closest, I'm going to be looking at fourth to fifth great grandparents, maybe sixth to seventh. And this is an 87-year-old individual for whom I'm seeking this information. That takes me deep into colonial days. And the records aren't always good and they aren't always present. And this is, as it happens, a Southern family and I'm not really sure where they're going. I've only started working that one fourth cousin, fourth to sixth cousin so far. This is gonna kick out a lot of matches. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I did dot them, right? I did mark them with all of the colors that I need to and everything like that. And so I've got them marked side one and side two. And so all of those matches will stay in place. But I manage or work with DNA kits belonging to a lot of clients. This is a lot of work that I'm going to have to shove into a really short period of time, including work that in the case of paying clients, they might not want to pay for which means they're going to lose their DNA matches. So there's yeah. that aspect of it. So when I'm working with European clients who are paying clients, European American clients who are paying clients, they might not want to pay for 
all of that and they're going to lose that data and at some time they might be sorry that they did. That's looking at it from a white perspective. Unfortunately, I think that Ancestry is looking at this from a very privileged uh, European white perspective as well because what they're not seeing is that when it comes to folks who are ethnically deprived of the documentary record, then, you know, they, they have the challenge of being in a skin that was not represented in documentation, then that means that, yeah, there's going to be a dead data loss. You and I have never shown up as cousins on Ancestry. No, because again, going by Ancestry's current matching algorithm, our common ancestors fall too far back in time. They, right. they, fall, they fall outside of that five to six generational level. Right. Even though I know your work is right, and I know my work is right, and we are both descended from Richard Pace and Isabella Smith, and we are both descended from Cecilia Reynolds, mm-hmm. and we are both descended, is, is it, was it with William Farrar that she was married? Is yeah. That the, yeah. So that couple, and then we're also uh, commonly descended from the Calvert family. So we have that in documentation. We're very fortunate. But moving forward, I mean, all of the reparational work that I'm trying to do, man, this is really going to cut folks off at the knees. Maybe you might want to post a link to it. But I remember right after the death of George Floyd, the mm-hmm. ancestry amongst all of the many other companies were sending out these letters filled with beautiful words about we recognize that we don't have diversity within our company and you know we don't have I, I can't remember if they said they didn't have many or any people of color at like the the top level of their kind of executive yep. executive function and it shows in things like this and you gave a beautiful kind of description of a, of a challenge for someone who's majority European American in terms of how this can affect them. So with me, I'm going to put my, my white ancestors to one side and my Jewish ancestors to one side. So yeah, everyone listening to this, I, I am Heinz 57. I believe <laughs> a little bit of everything. Um, well, a whole lot of European and African, a little bit of everything else. But what really frustrates me is that whether it, okay, I'm going to take this one group at a time, free people of color. Free people of color basically were free either because an ancestor was manumitted or freed from slavery. Um, So they were free and their children took on them the status of a mother. They could have descended from a white woman who nine times out of 10 would have been an indentured servant. Um, So because she was white and she was free, they were free. Or, you know, the product that they could equally have um, a white father. So in a lot of my cases, especially for my, my uh, Combo family, I descend from a woman called Elizabeth Combo, and we believe that she had children with a white man. And this is, again, kind of about 1733, 1734, she started having children, all the way down in um, Southampton County, Virginia. Well, we need DNA to figure out who the man was who fathered her children. Now, we have a map of her property. We know where she was living. We can see the properties that are around her. We have identified both households that were headed up by, by mulatto men, because again, we're looking for that European DNA, and by European men. We haven't even started triangulating that. But basically, most of my cousins are going to be half cousins. So already that common DNA is split in half. That's the same thing that I have with all of my enslaved ancestors. 
I probably have about 5,000 different enslaved family lines in my tree. Every single one of them goes back to a white person. Most of them white men, a handful of white women, but every one of those relations, all of my cousins are half cousins. We don't share a full set of common ancestors. Most of the time people get, when you're talking about common ancestors, they get the husband and a wife. You descend from two of the same people. When it comes to slavery, it didn't work that way. You know, they couldn't keep their britches buttoned. They couldn't keep their hands off their enslaved females. So unless the wife was a cousin to the husband, that happens, she's not going to be any relation to me whatsoever. So when you start dealing with half shared amounts of DNA, that eight center organs will run out like that. If, sorry, people can't see me. I just click my fingers. The DNA, <laughs> DNA will actually run out very, very quickly. Um, or if not run out, it will reduce very, very quickly, generation after generation. And it's things like this that really frustrate me about ancestry because it's, it's common sense. But because you know that there's not a melanated person or a person who really understands melanated genealogy, especially going back into the colonial period, they're just making these things in, in what I call a white vacuum. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, let's change this, let's change that, without realizing, actually, the, the repercussions and just how difficult that's going to make it for a large subset of people. You know, and this is a company that spends millions of dollars advertising to melanated Americans. Absolutely, they do. That I had no idea who I was, and I couldn't find this, and I couldn't find that. But look at me now, you know, wearing um, some kind of... Uh, traditional Nigerian, you know, outfit or something like that and saying, I didn't know that I was Nigerian. Yeah, they absolutely play to people of color, left, right and center. It is definitely a problem. You know, I do believe, and I think my teaching reflects it, that ancestry is a superior product. I think that they have a lot of the things that I need and that my clients need and that my students need. And that's great. But there are things that could be changed and made better. Now, when I said I'm not really very good at this, what I meant is I haven't, you know, I've only started working at finding missing family members using DNA, whatever kind, whether it's siblings or I found somebody's sister, I found somebody's parents, that kind of stuff, only within the last couple of years. And so when people talk about SNPs and all these kinds of things. There are all these kinds of terms, you know, and they mean things and I know they mean things. But the fact is, I only took the one obligatory math class freshman year and I flunked it. And I had to take it a second time and then a third time in order to be able to get out of my university. Okay. So I went to school basically so that I could use a calculator. I am not a scientific person. I'm a systematic person, but I'm not a scientific person. And I have not been in a position to actually learn in any meaningful way how it is that DNA works, other than the basics of how much you share, how much you don't, how things work. Sometimes it's big, blah, blah, blah. There are things that I understand, but we haven't talked about DNA very much on the program. And that's because everybody I want to interview, I wanted to interview somebody who worked at Cold Spring Harbor Labs. And um, he'd signed a non-disclosure and he couldn't come on, even to explain the difference between 
X, Y, he couldn't do it. He wasn't allowed. Um, and here I was thinking that I had secured this really awesome guest. So, <laughs> so I do understand triangulation and triangulation makes sense. Basically person A looks at person B and person A and person B share person C. That means that if person A is looking for somebody, then building person B's tree and building person C's tree, sooner or later they're going to collide. And that's how you start to find where person A fits into the family. And if you watch The Genetic Detective, which was a six-week show on ABC here in the United States, that is a really great way to understand how this system works. And there's, it's really the only way to do it. It's just very, it's very straightforward. But well, the science can, science of it is a different thing. No, absolutely. And if I can just remind the listeners, you never use DNA on its own, or at least you should try and make the best effort not to use DNA on its own, because DNA, just like a paper trail, it's their tools. And those two tools should always dovetail together. And I'll mm -hmm. give you give an example. So I'm a descendant of Patrick Henry. Yep, Mr. Give Me Liberty, Give Me Death. <laughs> and the way that I was able to prove that was going through, you know, he had an enslaved grandson, my ancestor called George Henry Rome. So it was a grandson of Patrick Henry who fathered my ancestor. So I was able to actually, through the paper trail, going through all the slavery-related documents, probate records, state inventories, sales deeds, property records, just all of that stuff, I was able to actually prove that George Henry Rome was born in his paternal grandfather's house, and that was Spencer Rome in Williamsburg, Virginia. I had him and I had his mother because they were recorded in, in different slavery-related records. So I had him in the house and I was getting matches on the Henry family. And specifically, I was getting matches on Patrick Henry's descendants. Now, the fact that my ancestor was called George Henry Rome, he named his first child, his first son, Patrick Henry Rome. Patrick Henry is still a name that carries down in my line. Every generation of my, my father's mother's side of the family, her own family, there was always a Patrick Henry. So I kind of knew. <laughs> the hairs went up on my arm, the hairs went up on the back of my neck, and I'm like, I, I've got it. I, you know, I've, I've got it. I've proven it. And even further back, I was getting matches on Patrick Henry's parents, both of his parents, their siblings, their descendants, and then his grand, and two people who were actually descendants of his great-grandparents. Wow. Now, in terms of ancestry, should not have been able, been able to get a match on them like that. But they were all there, but they were, they were just at that cusp. So actually, if it, the criteria had been eight center Morgans, two-thirds of my Henry DNA matches would have disappeared. I would have never seen them, would have never known that I matched them, and could have never used that information and their permission to hand over all the DNA results to my, the geneticists that I use in London to be able to do all the triangulation and, and all the kind of proof that was required. But the first point was the most important. I was actually able to put George Henry Rome in that, Roan, that enslaving Rome household. That was the important part. Then from there, there was only one son of Anne Henry and uh, Spencer Roan that could have done the deed. 
all of his other brothers were way too young to, be, to have been able to biologically father a child. So there's only one person, which isn't always the case, but in my, in my case it was. Like I said, I'm just thankful that at least at the time I was making that discovery, ancestry is being more realistic about its kind of matching algorithms. Mm -hmm. I think it's Centimorgans is really, it really is gonna negatively impact people. And I just wanted to make another point that I have never had a false match on seven or six Centimorgans, never. I may not immediately understand who the, who the set of common ancestors are or the one common ancestor might be, but I have never had a false match. I would say under about six center Morgans, then you really do have to pay attention. It, it's, it is easier to get false positives. But I think Ancestry is gonna have to do a lot of explaining about eight. And the threshold, the basement threshold, I believe on GEDmatch is seven, is that right? That's correct. Okay, so GEDmatch is a place where people who've taken DNA tests and upload, can upload from, I mean, any place, any place they've taken a DNA test, if they have that zip file that has their DNA data in it. So, I mean, gosh, MyHeritage and FTDNA, and there are so many people uploading products from different sites up to GEDmatch that if GEDmatch says that seven centimorgans of shared DNA is not just noise, then I believe them. I, I do, because... The fact is that that platform is built as a science experiment, basically. It's a giant science experiment. And so I don't, there are times when the money-making outfits really irk me. And, you know, I encourage people to translate their family trees from Ancestry over to Family Search. And the reason is that I love the idea, of course, in, in my situation, what I'm trying to do, we're trying to brown up the tree because so much of it is accounting for lineage that is Northern and Western European. And yet those lineages are inexorably intertwined with African lineages here in the United States. And so the idea is if it's a one world tree, let's really make it a one world tree. Let's, I mean, let's do the work. And I like the common sites. The other reason that I tell people to do that is that, again, although I am a fan of Ancestry and I teach Ancestry and I encourage people within my church to use Ancestry hand in hand with Family Search, something that you have to pay for might go bankrupt and might go away. And Very that is undeniable. Good so, good point. So I'm trying to think of where, what is the lesson learned here or what is the action that we take forward? This is what I've got and we'll see if you have anything else, Brian. What I've got is a couple of things. Download your DNA. Download and always make sure that you have your raw DNA that comes in a zip file when you download it, uh, which you do from the settings, little wheel that's in the upper right corner of your DNA profile. Download it and save it in like three different places. Save it on a cloud, save it on an auxiliary hard drive, save it on your computer hard drive. And then if you choose to, okay, upload to GEDmatch. That's on you. That's, that's a you problem, not a me problem. Everybody has to figure that out for themselves. The other thing is, if you're worried about this, you need to go in and just mark with color dots. 
And those color dots are a little palette. Unfortunately, you can't, it's not like Pantone. You can't choose just anything that you want. They have very specific, I mean, I don't know how many, 24 or something colors to choose from. And just say like I've done in my family. Okay, so the Pace family is powder blue. And so I mark off all the matches that I know to be Pace or that I suspect to be Pace. And the blocker matches are orange. And so I mark all of those with orange. By marking with the color dot, according to what I read from the crew's blog, it seems that that will preserve those matches. The problem is if you don't know, and it's maybe a good idea to create a category called unknown and to choose a color for it and to simply go down your distant matches and mark every single one of them with that so that you can preserve the presence of those matches and work with them in the future if you have not gotten the chance to already. That's what I can think of to protect oneself from this new policy and this movement. What do you think, Brian? Is there something else that we should be doing? You can also have the option of downloading your current match list. So oh, you okay. You can actually preserve that. And again, that's, that's hidden somewhere in the Ancestry DNA settings. You, okay. Like you said, if you click the little settings icon, the option's buried in there somewhere. But it, okay. it is there. Okay, so, and is that, does that come down like a spreadsheet or do you, have you done it before? A spreadsheet. Okay, great. All right, so these are the actions that we can take, everybody. I'm not just here to complain. I'm actually here to complain and come up with a solution. And if I can do it with family, why then so much the better. So this is what we've got. <laughs> can I make another point? Well, actually, oh, absolutely. Make any point you want to. A point and a half. This is not the first rodeo for this with Ancestry. This is either the third or fourth time that they've changed their matching criteria and algorithm. And every time that they've done it, genealogists of color specifically have cried out about it, going every time that you do this. And we're talking very well-respected, very well-renowned, um, recognizable, Black, Latino, Asian, East Asian genealogists. And like, every time you do this, you reduce our ability to find our earliest known ancestors. So ancestry has no position where it can sit there and it's like, oh, we've never heard this before. They've heard this plenty of time. You look at my Twitter feed, you can see every time that they've done it. I've tweeted at them. I tweeted at them today. Going, I was just getting to that, please. <laughs> it's the we'll mind come, meld, everybody. It's the mind meld. We'll come back to that one because um, I'm sure everyone at this point in time in America is really tired of the R word but racism does exist in genealogy. Mm. And I'll give you an example. My co-host, Donya Williams, our research group out of South Carolina, we were all taking our DNA tests around the same time. So naturally all of us kind of appeared on people's DNA match lists around the same time within days of each other. So I guess a lot of our kind of South Carolina or South Carolina connected white descendants freaked out. Our cousins freaked out. Those trees were closing up and being made private like a field of Venus flytraps. <laughs> oh, man. It was literally that quick. And I can appreciate that. I mean, I can appreciate part of it. 
you know, you identify as being European American, you think everyone in your family is European American, and those little thumbnails, you all of a sudden see all these black and brown faces going, what the heck is going on here? I'm not related to these people, kind of a thing. But it exists. And a lot of times they, they don't want to help. And the fact that they close up their trees and make them private kind of supports that. And I'm going to say that it's a big discussion going on amongst Black genealogists on, on Facebook and social media today with this announcement going, sorry, but we really do feel as though Ancestry is supporting European Americans who feel some kind of way about being related to Black people and specifically being related to Black people because of slavery. Mm -hmm. I wish Americans as a whole, you know, this, you're talking to someone who's lived abroad for most of his life, I wish we could just accept tough truths. And I wish that we could talk about tough truths. If your family, your family, if you're a DNA cousin, you're a DNA cousin, I don't care if slavery is the thing that actually unites us. It was what it was. It is what it is. Let's exchange information. I'm stuck on this part of your family tree. If you can help me with that, I'm going to help you on a part of your family tree that you are stuck on. I don't expect anything. I don't expect you to pay my university, you know, my, my college debts, my, my student loans. <laughs> I don't expect Christmas presents, birthday presents, Christmas cards, nothing. Basically, nine times out of 10, I just need info or a document. Or if you can help me find where a document is because it hasn't been digitized, we're good. We're golden. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't, you know, this is the country that we live in. These are the times that we live in. And unfortunately, it, it just doesn't work that way. And I think that both parties have a lot to learn from each other. Again, I've got a lot of poorly documented colonial era, very poor white European ancestors who are difficult to research. But I've developed, you know, me and other parts of the Genealogy Adventures crew have developed strategies for researching poorly documented ancestors. We did it with our enslaved ancestors because that's what we had to do. But those methodologies easily adapt so like I said, people who are going into really early Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, just all of those formerly native-held um, parts of the country that our European ancestors moved into really, really early. And I think that's just a wealth of information that can be shared, but people need to kind of get over their kind of knee-jerk reaction to understanding that they're related to people who don't, don't look like them. I mean, equally, I know of people of color who aren't happy or comfortable with being related to white people as well. It works. There's two different dynamics. They're flip sides to the same coin, mm -hmm. that kind of hesitance and, and reluctance. And I swear, just most of, the, most of my time, I just want to say, I wish Americans could just get over themselves. You know, just accept history is history. Whatever happened, happened. I'm not going to hold, any, you know, my Calvert cousins from Maryland. I am not going to hold them accountable for the fact that the Calverts were enslavers. We're talking, what, two, almost 300 years ago. That was back then. Let's just recognize each other as, as family. Yeah. The other thing I want to make clear to everybody is, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to serve as a wake-up call, increasingly so. I am laser-focused on this is a wake-up call, and it is time for white genealogists to come through for black genealogists in ways that they have not done before. And if it's not comfortable, good. That means you're facing it. 
So stay in that discomfort and walk on through it the way that you do any other fear. One thing that you can do is you can message everybody in your DNA list. This is for what this is for my white listeners, for my white American listeners. Everybody who shows up in your DNA list who has a black face, the first thing that you do is you select for the DNA matches that have photographs and then go through that list and message every single match of color and tell them just, hey, how you doing? Seems that we're related, fourth to six cousins or whatever it is that the, the DNA match says and say, I'd be really interested in working with you on this. It's going to be hard, but I think it'll be fun. That's all you have to do. That's all you're doing is you're saying, hey, because apparently, according to the cruise blog at cruise.blogspot.com, one of the things that you can do is just message somebody. And if you message the person, then that match will be retained. Well, it's easy enough to do that. Now, some people don't put their photographs on it because the photograph immediately identifies a person's ethnicity, and that can be a way to having doors shut before they're ever opened the same way that you said when you and Danya and everybody uploaded. And I've certainly seen that happen. I've had people tell me about that happening. And I had a woman storm out of the Pace family group that you and I are both in when I dared to post something asking if folks were marking their enslaving ancestors as such on their trees. And I said it so that admin had to approve posts and I'm the only admin now. So I read it, but I then deleted it. I didn't put it out there for everybody else because it was just poison. But what she said was that the idea offended her Southern heritage and that she was going to lock her tree up tight so that nobody could see her work. And that was her determination. That's fine. And it's understandable, therefore, when people don't put photographs on their profiles. But if you're suspicious then just look at them systematically. Do it while TV's on in the background. Take a couple of days to do this, you know, just take a week, whatever, and go through each one. And if you see that on their ethnicity estimate, there is Cameroon or Nigeria or Asian or anything else like that, then go for it. Just message them or mark them and mark them as, um, you know, POC cousin or something like that and make sure that one of your color dots is that. There are ways that we can combat this, obviously, but it doesn't take in the larger question. And the larger question, that's when we talk about Twitter. Remember, folks, that I did an episode about Twitter? You remember that? You remember how most of you completely ignored everything that I had to say when I said that Twitter, I'm being so passive aggressive. I said, I said that Twitter was a great tool for genealogists. And it is. Twitter is a great tool for genealogists. It's a great way to get into a community and to ask for help and to offer help and to joke around and to simply have people who understand how wonderful and annoying this profession or hobby or whatever it is for you is. And when you do that, you can also tweet at Ancestry. You can talk about problems that Ancestry has. Hashtag ancestry problems. There are ways to get the community into a discussion that includes ancestor being notified with every mention or response or retweet. And that lets ancestry know in a way that actually they do access. They really do respond on Twitter. It lets them know what it is that we are worried about, that we are upset about, that is a problem. 
protest works. And I think that it's time to start addressing systemic racism and thoughtlessness and white privilege in genealogy because there's no room for racism in genealogy. There's no room for white privilege in genealogy. Because that's kind of the discussion that black genealogists have had today is we feel as though ancestry enables white fragility. Absolutely. And we just wish that our ancestry could have parity with the people that we really do feel that they're, they're trying to protect in bubble wrap, you know, protect their, their little feelings in, in bubble wrap, thinking, well, hang on a minute. It's like, I can understand where they would get a shock and maybe thinking that three, four, five, six, seven times great-grandpa wasn't this perfect person that, the, you know, that he, either history is portrayed or the family is portrayed at our expense. We're the product of that, those unions, whether they were consensual or not. We have genealogists of color that don't necessarily feel as though ancestry understands or appreciate that we have a different story to tell, or that even our kind of DNA cousins recognize that we ha- will have a different kind of interpretation of, of those events. And as I said, I, we, we just really wish that our ancestry kind of had the same parity or the same kind of duty of care was taken for us mm-hmm. that are taken for, I guess, majority European Americans. Yeah. Um, it would be nice to actually feel that for a change because I've never felt that. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and of course, rightly so. I mean, and you have the direct ex- experience that proves it. I have the indirect experience and and having chosen to believe what I have been told about the way things are. Going into an archive and not being given a record if you're black, but then having a white person walk in an hour later and getting the record. You know, I want everyone to take personal responsibility for their own family. I want everybody to be looking at their ancestors and saying either my ancestors enslaved other human beings, and I want to understand more about that. And I want to put all of that information out there and then doing it. Or my ancestors got here after enslavement had ended. But we all still benefited from the enslavement of human beings because this country's economy was built on it. It's the foundation of this economy. And we're not just talking about enslavement, we're also talking about the period of Jim Crow. And we're even talking about now. You know, the fact is that there are two Americas. And I want people to start to look at that. And it's really uncomfortable and it's really aggravating. And I know for me, it just makes me so furious. Sometimes I can't control it, I can't fix it, I can't change it, but it's there. And the next thing to do is to move forward on it. And so how do we make changes? Okay, we change ourselves. But the other thing that I think that we need to do as a response to this is we need to let ancestry know, hey, this is not okay. You are doing something that is at its roots racist and that will have a racist effect. Even if you didn't know it, you should have because, hey, just as Brian just pointed out, you don't have any black or brown folks up at the top of your company. The upper echelons are the same as the lower echelons, all white. It's white, whitey, whitey, white, white. Let's fix that. 
Well, actually, it'd be interesting to get your take on something. It's something that I've never really talked about. The first part of it is most Black genealogists, almost all, well, all of the ones that I know, and I know hundreds of Black genealogists, we're, we're not, you know, we're not out to make people feel bad or, or guilty about being descendants of enslavers because it, it's not your fault, it's not our fault, how we connect, it is what it is. But what I would say is following, you know, Carolyn's really, really good suggestion about reaching out to people of color who are on your DNA match list, one thing you might want to consider is if your ancestry um, site is festooned with Confederate memorabilia. Now, I don't care. If I really want to know information bad enough, I will ignore the fact that someone's got Confederate flags everywhere, and I will just ask them the question. They normally don't get back to me. They see my profile pic and... <laughs> Wonder how that works. <laughs> it's just crickets. <laughs> you know, there's going to be no hard and fast rule on this, and I can imagine if Ancestry were to say, okay, no more Confederate flag, at least flag. I mean, if someone's ancestor won a Confederate medal and they want to put a medal as their profile pic, fair on you. That I actually do get. You know, you're proud that your ancestor fought in, fought in battles and conducted himself in a manner that he got an award. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to feel about that. But a Confederate flag or all the Confederate flags, I'm like, really? Really? Mm. Like, I know what you're telling me. And I know that you know that I know what you're trying to tell me. Is that is that really necessary? But you know and I know how Americans are. If Ancestry were to come out with a policy statement going, no more Confederate flags, all hell would break loose. And you, you know, as a commercial entity, you, know, you and I both know exactly how, you know, we can get a good guess of how many members it would lose. If it oh, yeah. That. But people should be aware, because I, I have strong feelings about the Confederate flag. I have very strong feelings about the Confederate flag, because I know the people, you know, when it actually came to the raping of slaves, I know the, white, the names of the white men who raped my female ancestors, and I'm the product of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have very strong feelings about the even apart from the, just slavery as a whole and that, that the whole thing, and, you know, I've got very, very strong feelings about it. And the last thing I really want to, you know, do is I'm doing my, my genealogy and, and ancestry is having to deal with like loads of that all over the place. Yeah. I mean, when I mark people as having participated in a military action or a war or having served in the military world in uh, say, uh, being army i use the army seal uh, navy i use the navy seal that kind of thing but when it comes to representing a confederate in my family i created a graphic and it's mm -hmm. white words on a red field and it says confederate soldier or soldier for the confederacy something like that and that's okay. um and that's that's a because i need that visual everybody you know has their different way of going i really like having a visual that tells me something then i have one that's identical to it only it's a blue field with the same exact font and it says union soldier in the civil war and that way if somebody looks at my tree and they want to see sort of where it is that people were and stuff like that they'll see that there is not one confederate flag on my tree and really if you're listening to this podcast and you've been listening regularly there should not be one on yours either and if there is i never even thought of that if there is please 
swap it out for the thing that I use. I will make it available on my Facebook fan page. I will make it available in the Facebook group. I will make it available on Twitter as I have done previously. And I've drafted a new one. And I want to make a note of this here. Everybody can grow and change. Just this week, I was really pushed over into a place of understanding that using a graphic that said slaveholder was not good enough. And I replaced it. I'd made a new one. And it says enslaver. And the reason is very simple. Language matters. If somebody is a slaveholder, it means they're holding slaves. And that imputes slave character to a person. No person is a slave as their being, as their profession, as their personality. People who are enslaved are artisans and are blacksmiths and are chefs and all these other things. And there are also siblings and parents and grandchildren and whatever. So, Yes, it's important that we continue to learn and it's important that we take this stuff forward and we can do it. If you haven't started a Twitter account yet, if you haven't created a Twitter account, then you need to do that and go back and listen to my Twitter episode. I will post a link in the show notes and that is going to tell you everything that you need to know about how to become active within the genealogy community on Twitter. And it's a valuable thing. It's where you can be heard. It's where you can learn. And in this case, I think it's time for a bit of a tweet up and for folks to start really letting Ancestry know what is okay and what is not. And the fact that they've been really thoughtless with this, it's not the black community's job to do this. It's everybody's job to do this. But it always does seem to fall on us. And when, when mm-hmm. we do speak out, we're told, oh, you're a snowflake, so get over it or forget about it or it happened so long ago. Mm-hmm. And I was blessed to have two of my great-grandmothers in my life until I was a teenager. I think mm-hmm. um, my second one died when I was 15. So we're talking women who were over 100 years old. They were born free, but their parents were enslaved. And their aunts and uncles were enslaved. They had cousins who were enslaved. Now, one great-grandmother from South Carolina, I couldn't, sorry, from North Carolina, I could not get her to talk about that at all. She didn't want to discuss it. My South Carolina grandmother didn't discuss it very often, but she did share the story with us about, she was a little girl. She said she was about seven or eight years old, running around Edgefield, South Carolina. And she asked it must have been a really hot day because a lot of the men had their shirts off as they were working, working on their farm. And she's like, why are all of their, their, their backs with all of those funny, funny things? What are those funny things on all their backs? Well, they've been whipped. And those were the scars. Wow. And that stayed with her for the entirety of her life. That stayed with her. So it wasn't that long ago. I think people like to think that it was, but Black people with deep, ancestry in this country are only two, at least two to three generations away from slavery. Yep. And, that's, and, and we're no distance from Jim Crow, to be, you know, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. So I believe I, that I, we're in Jim Crow. I believe that we are in a variety of Jim Crow that, that, that a lot of people, a lot of white people don't recognize, but it's true. I think it's called Jim Crow 2.0 or something. Is it? It makes like, sense. Something like that. 
but I would just invite listeners to this who are like, I love my Confederate flag and you just have to accept it and blah, blah, blah. Well, this probably is a bad analogy to them, but if you were Jewish, you would not want to see the Nazi flag. You are going to have strong, negative emotions and feelings about that flag. People of color do not want I shouldn't say all. I'm not a representative for, for every melanated American. <laughs> Everyone in my family, and my family is huge, and you start getting out to the, to the you know, fourth and fifth cousin level, I don't know a single Black person in my sphere that wants to see that flag. Because it mm -hmm. has, especially if you're a genealogist, because you have, this, you have the stories. You know what happened to your ancestors, and you know what was done to your ancestors. You know what that flag represents. There are other ways that you can display that. Like I said, if a person won a medal or a ribbon or your graphic or a neutral graphic, because again, I mean, um, I've done something very similar for my ancestors who fought in the Union. There were a couple of Union battle flags that came from the different states, like the Pennsylvania mm -hmm. one. I wouldn't dream of putting that up there thinking, well, I know I've got Southern cousins who are going to feel some kind of way. If you're going to be angry about seeing a Union flag, why should I have to see a Confederate flag? Because I feel exactly the same way about that flag that you would feel about a Union flag. So, so there's a, a lot to digest here, I think. And there are actions that we can take. We can be responsible within our own trees. We can be responsible in the larger community to other researchers. We can, knowing that Ancestry at this moment anyway, is going to be enforcing this new algorithm and policy, we can mark our matches, we can contact matches, and we can do the things that sort of grandfather in those matches. We can download the spreadsheet that is the current list of matches. And then we can act, we can contact Ancestry, let them know that it's not helpful, not constructive, going to be a problem in whatever ways, you know, whether it's something that you take personally because you're a foster or an adoptee, or there is an NPE event somewhere in your line and you're trying to look into that, or whether it is that you know that this is not fair to a population. It doesn't have to be your own population that it's not fair to. It just, you have to know it's just not right. It's just not right. It's not fair. Enabling fragility in people and letting them be, oh, but this, you know, what is it that that woman said, that it offended her Southern heritage or whatever? Yes. Yeah. No, 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 no. I'm not going to play that. I'm not going to play that. And if you're listening, you don't play that either. Because that's not what we do. That's not what we do. As my mother used to say about a great many things, that's not what we do. What I would dearly love to see is people speaking out about this now, because I think if there was enough critical mob, two things, people to speak out and for ancestry to put the brakes on this, because this is just in the pipeline. They haven't done it yet. There's nothing to say that they have to do this. So for people to speak, for ancestry to put the brakes on and listen to your customers. Mm -hmm. We're the ones who pay your salaries because yep. we pay them through our membership. Listen to your customers, engage with us, find out what our concerns are, find out what our experiences have been every single time you've done this. Because um, I don't want to say a name, but the cousin, my, my, my dear cousin in DC who you love so well, mm -hmm. is, is 
Well, her mother's European has been reduced from like 18% to 15 or 14%. She has lost almost all of her white DNA matches. She used to have loads. And remember, this cousin and I, we relate, we share nine different sets of common ancestors. But for whatever reason, because I have much more European DNA, I haven't lost nearly, I've lost a few, a handful of my European, uh, sorry, my white DNA matches, just a few. Can you imagine all, lo almost losing almost all of yours? And ancestry doesn't have, a, have an explanation for that. It's just like kicking a leg out from under a stool. I mean, it's just, it's going to teeter and fall. You can't do the work if you don't have the documentation and the DNA. You know, you need these things that, that are interwoven, as you said, that dovetail. That's the only way that this can possibly work. And we have high expectations now because the tools have been there for a while. And so now we expect to be able to do these things. We expect to be able to triangulate. To blow that out of the water is not only irresponsible, it's backwards. And it does real harm. And I think that that matters. So, so I wanted Brian to come and talk to us about this today. And I'm really glad that you did, Brian. I, I thank you for that. You, you have a book that just came out. Tell us about that and tell us where we can find you on social media. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And thank you again for, um, for hosting me on your show. I've really, sure. really enjoyed it. And a very good conversation to have, too. So I've come out with two books. Um, they're back-to-back. -back. The first one is called Practical Genealogy. 50 Practical Steps to Researching Your Family History. It's all done in a very kind of light conversational tone, trying to avoid complicated language and lingo. Always a good thing. <laughs> Always a good thing. Um, but it really does step you, step you right through it. And there's, there's something there for everyone. So whether you're African-American, there's even a little bit about Native American ancestry, European ancestry, immigrant ancestors, the, the works. Really gives you a good thorough introductory to intermediate level explanation of um, genealogy and genetic genealogy. There's a couple of chapters in there about what certain terms mean. You, all of that's kind of explored and explained. And there's the Family Tree Workbook, which is a, both electronic format and a paperback. Around, I think it's got about 32 or 33 family history forms that you can actually use the book, either a workbook or a research log book to get everything organized, and you can just lay your hands on it. And where can we find these? Where are they available? They are available in, at Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, and a lot of the, the big kind of um, online book retail stores. Okay, great. And you have the weekly Sunday podcast, which is a video podcast. It's more of an interview show. I don't know. I mean, do you call it a podcast? It's called Genealogy Adventures. And tell us about that and where we can find it. Okay. Um, I refer to that as my little online TV show. <laughs> <laughs> Genealogy Adventures. You can get our website that has all of our details and articles and videos and, and how to do research. And it's genealogyadventures, all one word, dot net. You don't even have to type in the HTTP bit. Just genealogy.net <laughs> takes you there. That's great. And, and the YouTube is, is really useful because if I don't catch it day of, I know I can catch it day after. And that's very helpful. Or, or any time for that matter, uh, put it in a playlist and just play them one by one as I'm 
padding around the kitchen and doing what I'm doing. That's definitely good. And where else can we find you on social media? Actually, do you know that our most popular thing, and I don't even know if you've explored this one, Pinterest. Really? Yep. That's interesting. Yeah, basically all of our social media handles is some variation of genealogy adventures. Sometimes it's genealogy advents, because that's the the number of characters we're given, but it's always (laughs) some form of genealogy adventures. But Pinterest is awesome. We get crazy traffic through our, through our Pinterest board. Interesting. Wow. So, so much so that I basically stopped Instagram. Because um, Insta- Instagram was kind of okay for us, but we weren't really getting that hardcore genealogy kind of group there. Mm-hmm. Whereas on Pinterest, wow, just awesome. Okay. So, so that's, and then of course, Twitter is, is a, a great place to have a conversation. So... I see you there. And people, people find me on LinkedIn. Oh, yes, absolutely. LinkedIn is a great place. Great place. That's how I found you. And yes. also, I just want to tell everybody real quick this is the story of how we met. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was working on a reparational tree for Raymond Bird, who was a lynching victim in the 1920s. I'm thinking 1923. I'm not sure that that's right. But anyway, 21. 21. And mm-hmm. his wife was Josephine Sheffy. Yeah, Josephine Sheffy. And I, I started to follow Brian on LinkedIn and I was seeing his posts and then I was kind of poking around and I was looking into the Sheffy side of the tree and I thought, I wonder, that's not the most common name in the world. So maybe, and I contacted you and you said, yes, as a matter of fact, that is my cousin. And so we became friends on Facebook and everything. And then, of course, the fateful day when we found out that we were both descended of the Calvert family and realized that we were family. And it's just gotten more interesting and better since then. <laughs> so, you know. It was Josephine Hawkins. And oh, was it funnily, And funnily enough, both of us got to the same brick wall independently of each other. Because Raymond Bird is actually a Sheffie. He's the oldest known ancestor is an unknown person with the initial S, Sheffie. And we both got stuck on that. Aha. We didn't know if S Sheffie was white, was black, was male, was female. We had no idea. And I can't find anyone on the white side of the family at that generation that ever had an S name. Not one of them. And we know that because Brian was good enough to... Uh, allow me to invite him into the tree and to take a look at it for me and to make sure that I was moving in the right direction because this was the first tree for a lynching victim that I had ever done. It's just the oddest thing. You know, <laughs> we have cousins in common and who, who have become great friends of mine. And this is how genealogy works when you do it right. And when you, you know, if I, if you will, cross the color line, if you don't worry about ethnicity and you just try to do the work, the thing is that you run up against some of the greatest people. And that's how I feel about you, Brian. So I really want to thank you for having been here with us today and having this conversation, which is not an easy conversation for some people to hear or to contemplate. And it's definitely an essential conversation and one that I will continue to have, and I know you will. So thank you very much. And again, thank you for the opportunity. You bet. And there you go. As of July 23rd, 
Ancestry stated the following to genealogist Emily Doolin Alessino about dropping matches below eight centimorgans. Based on customer feedback, we are delaying this change until late August, so you have time to review and determine if you want to save any very distant matches by adding them to a group, starring them, adding a note, or sending them a message. We hope this helps. Well, it does, and thank you, Emily, for posting that publicly on your Facebook page. We need to work together to stay informed because Ancestry is not putting its best foot forward, neither with updates about the policy nor with the policy itself. As I said, please listen to episode 201 about joining Twitter and using it for genealogy. It's the quickest way to stay informed on the latest developments in genealogical research, and it's truly a well-developed, healthy community for help and support. And as a source of genie news, let me tell you, it is the quickest way to find out what you need to know. Thanks so much for listening. Keep researching, demand thoughtful policy from the powers that be, and above all, expect surprises.